All right, so going to continue in Jeremiah. This is going to be uh, Jeremiah 3, 6 through 4, 4. Um, last week, um, I pray that we were all kind of left with a hopefulness uh, based on what we saw in the scriptures, uh, that even in our unfaithfulness, that God is faithful and that though we may be disciplined or suffer in this life, God is not going to throw away his elect. He's not going to get rid of us. He's not going to chunk us in the trash. He's not going to mark us off and start over. He's, uh, he's long-suffering with us. And I hope that we, uh, even though we deserve it, we see the glory and the grace of Christ in that. Though, uh, though we fall and fail, that he is still our He's our Father, and Christ is a wonderful Savior. Um, so we're going to continue here into like what I think is a very important point and a kind of a personal side of our relationship as sinful men with the Holy God. And we see that kind of interaction in this, uh, this set of Scripture. The main idea sentence for this particular set of Scripture is that repentance is God's plan, so plan your repentance. Repentance is God's plan, so plan your repentance. Um, Stephen Smith said in his book, on the commentary on this, something I thought was very important. Sin is an act of infidelity. It is an act of unfaithfulness to the one we love. And as a point of historical context, let's kind of dig into what this, what this, how the scripture begins, because I think it's important to kind of set up where we're going with with the rest of it. Um, so historically, the stage is set in verses six through eleven. Kind of, if the reader came in, started reading Jeremiah, and didn't read everything before it, they'd kind of see what was happening based on this. Um, Israel has been unfaithful and played the harlot. Um, idolatry, uh, accepting pagan practices, all those things. So they are unfaithful to God. Well, then we look at Judah, and they were also found unfaithful. Even though at this point in history, uh, King Josiah is the king, and he is trying to make reforms, we still see unfaithfulness here. Um, even though maybe Judah considered themselves like, we're the good kingdom, you know, Israel's the bad kingdom, you know. We're the good ones, we're the ones who follow God. We got a good king, they got a bad king kind of thing. They also love their idols, though. And that's an issue with God. You see, because judgment is promised in chapter 2, right? We've, we've talked about that already. Judgment, Babylon is coming. They will be let out as slaves. They will be taken. And yet, God will somehow bring his people back. They deserve the anger and the wrath of God without reprieve, no doubt. But God is faithful even in our unfaithfulness. And this leaves Judah with this question. Based on all that I've done, will God always be angry with me? 
And, you know, I think, too, we could look at that and maybe ask ourselves that question sometimes. You know, maybe we may ask ourselves this question, and some of us may be tormented asking ourselves this question. And is God always going to be angry with me because of all the things that I've done and all the f- times I fail him now? Is he always going to be angry with me? But, thank goodness, we see the answer from God's own mouth in Scripture. Let's start with verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. <coughs> it says, Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. I will not be angry forever is the answer to the question. This doesn't mean that that we don't deserve his anger. We don't, because of our sin, we're not deserving of his wrath. Of course we are. Of course, sinfulness is, God hates sin, and, and, and sin is an abomination unto him, so of course we're deserving of the wrath. Yet, God's love is unfailing. It's an unfailing love that can be translated into faithfulness. The Hebrew word is chesed. Faithful love. Steadfast love. And that word chesed, meaning faithfulness, faithful love, steadfast love, enduring love, is used 150 times in the Psalms. The things that we would sing in in worship, those That's what Israel would sing in worship. God made sure to to put that in there 150 times to remind those people, my love is unfailing. My love will not fail. My love is steadfast. It's not going to end. And though we may try to show faithful love in relationships and those things, only God can do it perfectly and faithfully because his love, He always loves his elect perfectly. So, let's look at our sin versus his faithful love for just a minute here. To think of God's love in contrast to our sin should spark us to worship him, to to desire to worship him in the ways that we do. You know, in the gathering on Sundays and in our times at home in prayer and in Bible reading and in study, in times of family worship, when we're sitting at the table and just talking about the goodness of God together. To think of his wonderful love and my many times of being in sin and being unfaithful, yet his faithful love has not changed one bit towards me is a wonderful thing to think about. A second way thing to look at is that in every way that we have wronged God, he's been right to us every time. God has never given us anything that he didn't intentionally give. He doesn't leave us dangling out on a string, taking hits like a pinata. He knows all things. He has ordained all things in our lives, and he will never lead us wrong. Yet, I sin. There's many times in my life when I build an idol and I maybe I... Don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, and strength, right? I know I'm not going to do that. Yet, 
He is always right to me. Another contrast is admitting our sin and repenting of it is actually worship to him. He's called us to repent, to confess our sins to him, because he's faithful and just to forgive us, right? It's a part of our worship service that we have a time of, of repentance, a time of confession of sin. And we make sure that we end it with an assurance of pardon, because we know that he's faithful, and his love is unfailing towards us no matter what we may do. Lastly, in looking at our sin versus his faithful love, to be reminded of the depths of our sin should magnify the heights of his grace. Though our sin be awful, yet his amazing grace is, is unfathomable. So, because of God's faithful love, he will not be angry with us forever. I want to look at a set of scripture in Psalm, it's Psalm 103, I'm going to read you verses 8 through 10, where it explains exactly how God interacts in this way. It says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. What sparks God's anger? Sin. We know that's what makes that that's what sparks his anger. So our sin does make him angry. As we see in Jeremiah, Israel and Judah have spurred God to anger at this time. Their idolatry, their sinfulness. They must endure what's coming because of that. But what abates God's anger? What turns God's anger is repentance, a true repentance, turning. We saw that too, I think, in the um, in, in Nineveh, right? He sent Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go. He wanted to go to Tarsus, but he went to Nineveh and he warned them and. They repented, and what happened? God turned away. I'm not going to, I won't destroy Nineveh. You see, that's, a, that's a, a turning away of his anger based on true repentance. Now, we see also, if we look to Christ, we see God's anger and wrath poured out on Christ. The punishment for sin poured out on him. So now as he looks at us, who are in Christ, what does he see? A people who have repented and turned to him. And now his anger and wrath has been poured out on Christ and in the end it will not be poured out on us. So let's go to the second point here. Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 3. It says, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors 
to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. It says, return, O faithless sons. So, if we're going to take it to the analogy that we used, I think, last week, um, of a husband and an unfaithful wife, right? This is a shocking set of verses, especially to our culture. The husband, he's been cheated on. His wife committed adultery against him. And he is calling her to come home. In fact, he asked for them to return to him three specific times in just chapter 3. In verse 12, 14, and 22, he says, return. So, if we look at it, repentance is the key to returning to God. Two things on repentance, just to kind of clarify some things on what, what repentance is and how it looks. First of all, Repentance is just is not just the feeling sorry or the guilty feeling guilty for the sin. And it's also repentance is not just for salvation alone. Because repentance, if we look at how it looks in Scripture, it is a turn from sin, acknowledge of the guilt for sin, and to flee from it to God. Repentance is essential for the Christian as well in maintaining a right relationship with God. And we see that in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Now notice this letter is from John to Christians. It says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now this flies in the face, in, in, in contrast to um, a few so-called Christian leaders who I've heard actually say, heard one actually say, actually yesterday I was watching a video, um, says in 14 years since he got saved, he has not sinned once. Says he's perfectly sinless. Um, Joyce Meyer has even said that she no longer sins. You see the uh, that whole word of faith idea. If you repent and say that you're a sinner saved by grace, that's wrong. You can't do that. Which to me, if if I look at scripture, that's flies in the face of kind of what all about it's all about a turning from sin to christ right it's it's about redemption it's about turning from those things and turning towards christ because he is the sinless one he is the one who can who has completed the work if we don't turn from it to him what are we doing it is not however 
just admitting or confessing. Uh, repentance is followed through. Uh, Luke 3, 8 makes that clear. Um, it says, talking about people being baptized, it says, now produce fruit consistent with repentance. So there will be things seen in our lives. Will there be changes made possibly in our lives? And that's a good thing to know that we can turn from our sin and turn to him and fill it with things that will be joyful and give us peace in our lives, right? So I want to look at another specific point given in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detested things from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it, because of the evil of your deeds. In these verses, we see that repentance is a plan for restoration. The plan is not exhaustive here. It's not, you're not given the exact step-by-step instructions for how to repent properly. That's not what this is about. It contains some essential aspects, though. In verse 1, we see a pretty key one, uh, especially to early, to, to, to Israel in these days. Uh, this is actually a pretty good, a pretty important thing to the disciples as they carried the gospel throughout the world. This is something they actually did themselves. And in verse 1, it talks about remove the idols. Um, many times, what infuriated the people most when the disciples came into their city, country, whatever, is one thing they would always do is they would find where all of the idols were and they would smash them. They'd, they'd wreck them. That's one of the reasons Thomas was speared on that mountain because he had been crushing the Hindu gods and preaching Christ. So to remove idols, Judah must get rid of these other objects of worship, these things that they're putting as, importance to, as important to worship that aren't God. And this is also necessary in our lives. I have to ask myself, what is there anything that I love more than God? And I know that's kind of a, a blanket statement. But here's the thing. Um, there's some times in my life I know I need to cut the TV off and I need to catch up on my Bible plan. You know, those things. And those are some things I could do, and I, and I need to get rid of that in my life. I need to, honestly, sometimes in the morning, one of my idols, my wife will tell you this, one of my big idols is about 30 more minutes of sleep. And it's hard for me to get up so I can get up and read my Bible in the morning. And I need to, to turn from that and get rid of that. Verse 2, it talks about swearing to their commitment. 
It says that Judah must swear an oath. Now, we don't stand and hand over heart, two fingers up, whatever, and swear out some Christian oath, right? That's not how we do that. That's not what we do. What we do is that we commit our lives to live how his word says, right? We, we, that's how we commit our lives, that we see that there are fruit seen, that that's how we commit our lives. Our lives are committed to living through God's word and doing what his word says. Now, the next one I think is wonderful, and I love it. In verse 3, it says, break up the fallow ground. And it's talking about cultivating your heart. The heart must be like a field with cultivated soil. Brother Dale doesn't start his garden by going out into grass this high and sticking his finger in the ground and shoving a, a seed in. Because what's going to happen? The grass is going to eat, it's going to make that seed where it won't produce. First thing you do is you get your tiller out and you till up the fallow ground. You get to the good stuff. You get the bad stuff out and you get the good stuff in there, right? You see, what we're seeing here is through the first step of removing idols, that's one of the things that they're, that, that's happening. Israel needs to cultivate their soil. Judah needs to cultivate their soil with the idols rooted out like weeds to humble themselves before God and be ready to receive his word like good seed. We then would see our hearts kept sensitive by the Holy Spirit to what he shows us through his word. No matter how many times we may read it, God will show us things through the Holy Spirit and through his word that just maybe hit home a little bit harder than some days than others. Now, some would say, God spoke to me and said this, and I would say, What's the chapter and verse? Because the only way that we hear God's voice is through his word. And the only way we hear it audibly is if we're listening on the Bible app or we're reading aloud, right? That's the only way. So that's how he does that. That's how he tills up the fallow ground, right? So, not receiving his word as good seed is going to lead us to what we see happening on the way for Judah. Destruction. A mess. Calamity, right? The fourth thing it says in chapter in verse 4, it says to consecrate yourself. Now, it uses uh, circumcision uh, to show the consecration, right? It's kind of an analogy. It's an external sign of an internal covenant. Circumcision was an external sign of the internal covenant that the children of Israel have with God. Does that sound familiar? We're Baptists, right? Baptism is our external sign of an internal covenant, right? It speaks to publicly identifying with our faith, and that's why I think it's so important to be baptized. Does baptism save you? Nope. But it is an external sign of an internal covenant with God. We identify in baptism with the object of our faith, right? with Jesus Christ. As he buried and rose again, now we are raised to life in him. The people Jeremiah is speaking to have the physical sign. They have it. But it's not only physical. Be 
because it has not taken root in their hearts. Because, you see, repentance and turning to God is not a feeling. It's more of an action because repentance is part of working out our salvation with fear and trembling like it says in the Word. There must be a plan for that, for change in our hearts. And as we consecrate ourselves and we identify with Christ more, we begin to see that more in our life. Fourthly, the fourth thing that we need to see here is that your repentance is part of God's plan. Your specific repentance is part of God's plan. What's the consequence of sin? Scripture tells us very clearly. The wages of sin is death. For the Christian, we've been brought from death to life. So what are the consequences of sin in our lives? Well, there's a lot of negative things that could happen in your life because of sin. But what is the consequence of repentance? For Judah, the consequence of repentance was that the nations would be blessed because of them. If Judah would repent, the nations would be blessed because of Judah. For us, the first consequence we see of repentance in our life is that we are brought from death to life. 100%. We're not men drowning in a sea. We're the bones on the bottom of the ocean. And we need... Christ to breathe life into us. And when we're in Christ, the consequence of repentance is that we turn back to Him. We see Him. We turn to Him and see Him as the most important thing again. We run, we run back to Him for, to meet our need, to, to give us our help. Because we on, we on our own can never Get rid of all the sin of our li- in our lives, period. We can't. But Jesus on the cross took all of those upon himself. And we run to him. And we lean upon his finished work. So, as a point of application, I'm going to read verse 4-4 and give you, some, give you some thoughts, maybe some questions to ask yourself. It says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. So the questions I would think that we could ask ourselves this week are, what sin remains in my life that I need to, to repent of and to work, work on? What thing, and you know, open, honest for me, there's one main thing that seems to be lying at the heart of, 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 of everything. And it's the desire to fix things on my own and worry about it until it's fixed. That's the root of many of my problems. Anger, laziness, all of it. That's what I need to work on. I need to work on that. I need to, to repent and turn from it. Then we can also look, you know, what step am I on in that, in my planned repentance, you know, Am I, am, I, am I consecrating myself? Am I cultivating my heart? You know, those things are important. 
Because we, we need to be examining ourselves and moving closer to Christ daily through His Word, through repentance, through prayer, all those things. We're moving closer. We want to move closer to Christ. The closer we get, like Kelby says, what, what happens? The closer we get to Him, the bigger He gets in our life, right? And we want to see Christ magnified. So, in this, I would say, may we all seek to be just conformed to His image, to desire Him above all things. Next week, we're going to be doing verses 4, 5 through 6, 30.